Contrary to popular belief, many leading scientists spend much of their time confused about what they're doing and struggling to make progress. This was repeatedly brought home to me while I was researching my new book, The Universe Speaks in Numbers. My name is Graham Farmlow, and this is another interview in the series Marking the Book's Publication. Actually, this is a continuation of the interview given to me in August 2018 by the leading theorist Nima Arkani Hamed about his recent research on the mathematical structures used to describe subatomic particles. Work that's proved influential not only in physics, but also in mathematics. Around 2007, Arkani Hamed was finding it desperately hard to make headway. He was trying to make sense of the multiverse, the idea that our universe is but one of many, possibly zillions of them. It was just too tough, or at least too tough for me, he later told me. The problem was that he couldn't find a way of setting out his ideas in a precise mathematical way. He became interested in what happens when subatomic particles, especially the quarks and gluons inside atomic nuclei, scatter off each other at ultra-high energies. This wasn't just of academic interest. Physicists needed to understand these scattering processes if they were to interpret properly the data due to pour out of the Large Hadron Collider Accelerator at CERN near Geneva. In this huge machine, experimenters smash protons into each other at speeds within a split whisker of the speed of light. They're reproducing the conditions in the very early universe, a fraction of a second after the beginning of time, hoping that nature will reveal more of its secrets. One of the leading experts in scattering amplitudes, the Venezuelan theorist Freddy Cuchazo, inducted Arkani Hamed into the field. They became collaborators and friends, with Arkani Hamed becoming a student all over again, as he put it. He found it tough going at first, but was soon captivated and convinced that studying descriptions of these sub-nuclear events had a lot to teach us, even about the nature of space and time. To make progress, Arkani Hamed and his collaborators have used mathematical models of scattering that don't apply directly to the particles in the real world, hoping that they can nonetheless learn about reality. I asked him, how could he justify such a claim? Well, I, I would say two things about this. Uh, I'll make a, a slightly broader point first. Yeah. Um, as, a, as a theoretical physicist, I'm certainly very happy to make approximate statements about the real world right. uh, rather than exact statements about imaginary world, or certainly better than approximate statements about imaginary world. So, so everyone is used to the idea of uh, spherical cows in physics. Yeah, right? yeah. You come up with uh, simplified... Crazy idealizations. Uh, yeah. Sometimes crazy yeah. idealizations, yeah. toy yeah. models. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is part of the culture of theoretical physics, to try to find some kind of system that's a little bit simpler than what you literally yep. see in the real world yep. in order to get some idea for a, for a, for something more general yep. or maybe deep important which is going mm -hmm, on. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about, you know, uh, a ball rolling down an inclined plane and you ignore friction, mm -hmm. uh, no one says, oh, you're doing total crap. Why are you ignoring friction? There's friction in the real world. Well, someone, some people might say that. If you're interested in friction, it, then you can complain about that. But if you're Galileo and you're trying to figure out actually how things roll and move and get more basic things, it's a good idea to uh, ignore things like that. So uh, the work that many people working in this subject and I have been, have been doing 
is close related to real, actual experiments that happen in the actual real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we collide particles at the Large Hadron Collider, um, the quarks and the gluons that are the mm-hmm. little subatomic elementary particles inside protons, they bang into each other. Mm-hmm. And there are some rules about how they bang into each other. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the, the, these things are even relevant directly to interpreting uh, experimental results. And so there's a large community of people who's been trying to calculate based on completely standard known physics. Um, and this completely standard known physics is really springs intimately from space-time and quantum mechanics. It's not far removed from that. It's not, you know, ten more levels beyond that. It's really the basic rules of space-time and quantum mechanics when applied to uh, particles like quarks and gluons inside the, the proton gives rise to a well-understood recipe for figuring out uh, how particles scatter, which is even of importance to actual world uh, experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, so the amazing thing that the people studying this subject for 30 years have uncovered is that there is an incredible amount of hidden, mysterious, simple mathematical structure mm-hmm. in the actual formulas that, that you get when right. you do these calculations. And uh, people like me who are big Johnny-come-latelys to this subject, you know, Mm -hmm. have not been working on it for a Mm -hmm. very long time, Mm -hmm. think of these incredible formulas that uh, people have worked out for for years, not just as being relevance for experiments, which of course they are, real experiments, Mm -hmm. okay, but also you can think of them as theoretical data. (laughs) They're data about theoretical physics. These formulas have structure. Mm -hmm. They're telling you stories about something. First, they're vastly simpler than what anyone would have uh, have possibly expected. Um, You go through what looks like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of complicated calculations to get a one-line final answer. Mm. And when this sort of thing happens, it's such a sort of bolt from the blue. You have to wonder. There's probably a reason. There's some logic behind it. It's even conceivable that the logic behind it has to do with a new set of rules from which space-time and quantum mechanics somehow emerge Mm. uh, in a more unified, in a more uh, inexorably linked to each other way than we appreciate now, where we think of them as these two different structures that have to be jammed together in this uh, straitjacket way. This is quite amazing. You're talking about particle collisions telling you about space-time itself. That's right. And it's it's not crazy because, uh, after all, these are teeny tiny elementary particles. Mm -hmm. We don't see them going in, hitting each other, first this happens, then that happens, taking every possible path they could the way Richard Feynman told us in order to be compatible with the laws of quantum mechanics. All of these things, the picture of the space-time in which the collisions take place and the quantum mechanical rules, these are all part of a vast formalism that we use to uh, figure out what happened, whereas the actual observations uh, don't actually see that. We don't see all of that happen. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing that the apparent complexity of all the calculations that are involved are really forced on us by making the agreement with the usual principles of space-time and quantum mechanics completely manifest. Mm-hmm. So you want to make space-time and quantum mechanics in the standard way completely mm-hmm. manifest, you seem to get horrendously complicated calculations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to find some way that, uh, to understand why the answers are so simple to begin with. Mm-hmm. It stands to reason that that picture will somehow think of space-time and quantum mechanics in a different way. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's an opportunity to learn something deep about space-time and quantum mechanics by asking a direct physical question about the actual real world. Mm-hmm. Um, now, 
that's the ultimate motivation. And, and the hope is that by trying to understand these simple physical processes in the real world, we will be led to at least one path into a deeper understanding of what's, what space, time, and quantum mechanics are actually about. Again, I, I, I want to stress again that we already appreciate that their interactions, their, their dynamics, mm-hmm. how it all works is, is a slave to space, time, and quantum mechanics mm-hmm. already. That's, that's the profound discovery of the 20th century. What we're trying to do is kind of invert that on its head and see if we can more directly understand what these scattering processes are like and thereby learn something mm-hmm. uh, maybe new. Uh, about what space-time and quantum mechanics really are. Mm-hmm. Um, now, having said all that, you talked about uh, mathematical masturbation, and mm-hmm. you uh, talked about uh, models that don't have anything to do with, with the real world. Um, we have found that in trying to understand these uh, processes, that there are simpler versions of the theories that we know mm-hmm. describe the real world, which in first approximation are identical to the real world. So it's not like something which is sort of vastly mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. Um, even calling it spherical cow is not such a good, <laughs> is doing it an injustice. It's really, it's more like something that looks kind of like an ellipse and you treat it like a circle to, mm-hmm. a, to a begin with. Okay? Mm-hmm. So there are toy theories. There are theories that enjoy more symmetry mm-hmm. than, the, than the theories that literally, literally describe the real world, mm-hmm. but they agree with the real world mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in first approximation. And, uh, uh, and so we hope to understand what's going on in these simplest theories first, and then get closer and closer to the real world. But this idea that, that what uh, at least you know, some groups of theoretical physicists are, are doing are incredibly far removed from the real world is just false. Because uh, uh, everything that we're all doing is in a context where this agreement with relativity and quantum mechanics is paramount. Arkani Hamed repeatedly emphasizes the crucial role of experiment in theoretical physics. But with so little new information about the subatomic world coming from CERN's Large Hadron Collider over the past few years, isn't there a grave danger that theoretical physics is losing its way? I think it's a completely reasonable worry. It's a completely reasonable thing to think about. As we talked about at the beginning, I spent a great deal of my career thinking about uh, thinking about experiments. I, I think new experiments are incredibly important. I've spent a reasonable amount of my time, even over the past few years, trying to do work together with many, many other people to maybe motivate the next generation of accelerators after the LHC. Um, something that I think it is it's important to say is that the fact that we've had sort of two major experimental shocks in the last 20 years. Uh, in, in the late 1990s, our astronomer friends discovered the universe is accelerating. That was a big shock. Many theoretical physicists did not, did not expect that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and seeing the Higgs particle and nothing else is another big shock. This is not, uh, saying that it confirms the standard model is, is, like, is like saying, well, it would have been nice if there was something beyond that, but uh, we're just confirming something that we expect anyway. Most people did not expect it, and there are very deep and good theoretical reasons that we shouldn't have seen just the lonely Higgs particle and nothing else. Um, the fact that that's what the world looks like is a shock to the theoretical system. It's, uh, it's, it's 40 years of thinking about what's going on, um, which seems to, uh, we don't know for a fact that it's wrong, but it seems to be pointing in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, this is actually something, it's something exciting. It means that there's a much larger paradigm shift that's, uh, that's got to be involved in understanding very basic facts about the world mm-hmm. um, than what people even expected uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, my attitude for what we have to do, A, we have to learn in as many different ways as we can new experimental facts about nature. There's no two ways about it, and I think theoretical physicists should spend a decent fraction of their time thinking about that 
uh, trying to motivate new experiments, trying to propose new experiments. This is very important. I probably believe this more than mm-hmm. most other people you'll, you'll interview, but mm-hmm. I think physics is an experimental subject, mm-hmm. and, uh, and mm-hmm. it's damn important to pay attention to, uh, to what the experimentalists are, are, are doing, mm-hmm. especially when experiment seems to be telling you that 40 years of thinking in a particular direction about a particular set of problems does not appear to be right. Theorists need to pay attention when nature speaks in such a direct way. But B, what should I do about it theoretically in my theoretical thinking? And I think that what we've learned is that there's some profound mystery in the intersection of the ideas of space-time, quantum mechanics, and the vacuum. There's something about these three Mm -hmm. important concepts which we're not thinking about, right? Mm -hmm. And so my attitude is to stay as close as possible to nature, (laughs) to stay as close as possible to these principles and try to figure out more deeply what they're about. Mm -hmm. If we think about them in the conventional way uh, that physics has been formulated for over 50, 60 years now, we run into all these paradoxes uh, and all these uh, theoretical conundrums uh, that led us to expectations like supersymmetry or some kind of compositeness associated with the Higgs particle and so on. Those expectations, we, again, we don't know for a fact, but they, they appear to be wrong. Okay? Mm-hmm. So uh, we can either throw up our hands and say there's something magic, mysterious going on, we don't know anything, and that's a completely pointless uh, thing to do. I think we need to go back to these basic principles space-time, quantum mechanics, the vacuum, and try to understand them more invariantly, more profoundly, by sticking as closely to basic physical processes that take place in the real world as we possibly can, Mm -hmm. and hope that by doing that, we expose uh, something new that will shed new light on these problems that we failed to make progress on in 40 years. Experiments at the Large Hadron Collider have produced no sign of the long-sought supersymmetry and no clues for theorists about what they should do next. This has led many to worry that theoretical physics is now in a very bad way. But Arkani Hamed has often said there's never been a better time to be a theoretical physicist. Does he stand by that? I absolutely do. Uh, but let me, let me explain it uh, a little bit because um, it does seem to cause some cognitive dissonance. There are a lot of people uh, walking around with their heads down and kind of depressed and saying, well, we don't have any new clues from experiment, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, how can it possibly, there are other people saying this is one of the most exciting times ever. Right. And uh, so both things are true. They're consistent with each other. Mm-hmm. And it, it has partially to do with what your attitude is about physics and your personal role in it. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, I think the reason why some fraction of people are depressed is that uh, at some level they had in the back of their mind that you know the machine would turn on, that see all kinds of new things, and that would validate some theory or other, maybe even their theory, right? There was some personal glory associated with it, even if not them specifically, then, then the set of ideas that they spent 20 years working on or whatever. Um, Okay, that's a very human thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things have happened that way in the recent past. Mm -hmm. I think it's an incredibly narcissistic thing, and it's not something deep or profound or or good, Mm -hmm. even, Mm -hmm. um, uh, to be motivated by by such things. Um, Even the idea that important progress on profound problems can take place over the course of 20, 30 years, a human career, a human lifetime, this is a relatively recent thing. It, it, It was not always the case. In fact, I would say the greatest leaps in physics... Uh, much greater than the development of the standard model of particle physics. These are things that took place on the timescales of decades and centuries, not on the, with very, very fast progress with machines turning on and making exciting plots mm-hmm. that sent people to Stockholm <laughs> and so on. This stuff is trivial. This is not important on the scale of uh, centuries and, and millennia on mm-hmm. which we, we need to think about progress on these grandest, greatest questions. So if you remove from considerations whether you will live to see mm-hmm. the answers, or never mind whether you will 
will be part of it. You will be celebrated if you remove all those things. What I find to be the most amazing thing about the period we're in is that finally, after centuries, really, I believe, this is the first time um, in the history of fundamental physics when these grandest questions that inspire you when, when you're small, these absolute grandest questions are finally the next questions. The analogy I like to use is you want to climb Mount Everest. So mm-hmm. you have to like book a flight to uh, Nepal. You arrive in Kathmandu. You got to find some Sherpas. You mm-hmm. go through the foothills. Mm-hmm. You got to ford all these rivers. You all, all do this stuff until you finally get to base camp and mm-hmm. you see the damn thing that you have to have mm-hmm. to climb. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the last 400 years of physics has been have been about getting to base camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was uh, so many things that we had to figure out about how the way the world works um, before we really got to responsibly ask the questions about what is space and time, but the origin and fate of the universe. These huge scale questions were pointless to ask 50 years ago, even 50 years ago. But we can ask them now. We can ask them responsibly now. It's possible to work on them. It's possible to get up in the morning and work on them. Just like it's possible once you're on base camp to decide what you're going to do. You have to start climbing, and people have started climbing. They've they've taken a a few routes here or there even. Um, You can maybe just sit at the bottom and decide you need to wait for oxygen masks to be invented, or you can start climbing. Maybe you'll fall off and die. Maybe some people make more rapid progress, but it turns out that the path that they've picked is fundamentally flawed and they'll never get it to the top. And other people who are more slow will get there. Who knows how it's going to work? But I think we're finally confronting the really fundamental beast that we have to uh, confront uh, more or less head on. And I think that's an incredible privilege. It's not, uh, it, it has not happened in the, in the last 400 years. I think it's the, really the first generation of people for whom this is the clearly defined task, and we get to work on it. Uh, so I think it's incredibly exciting that we get to work on it. Will it take uh, 10 years to make substantial progress? 30 years? 500 years? Mm-hmm. I honestly don't know the answer to this question. Mm-hmm. It could be 10, it could be 100 or 500. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but what's, what's correct, in my view, and exciting, and why I say that I think it's the, the most exciting period I could imagine working in, is that this is our job. This is what we have to do. We've got to figure out how to start, how to start climbing. There's no denying that many particle physicists these days are downhearted. The dearth of interesting clues from the subatomic world has been desperately disappointing. But Arkani Ahmed refuses to be downhearted. He has no time at all for colleagues he describes as crybabies, who don't like it when nature doesn't give them the answers they were expecting or hoping for. For him, what matters is that theoreticians can now address the biggest questions about the universe. The nature of space and time, how the universe itself began and how it might end, guided by special relativity, quantum mechanics, and amazingly, by advanced mathematics. In the end, though, it's essential to remember that attempts to understand nature can be judged only by nature itself.